My wife said that I said last Sunday night that you're supposed to chapter, do chapter 2 tonight, and it was chapter 1. So you ignore everything I say and go ask my wife what I should have said, and you'll have it pretty straight. God willing, we plan to do chapter 2 next Sunday night, and I'm calling it a paradigm of Jeremiah's ministry because as we go through that chapter, we'll see the message he had to preach, the response to it, etc. Uh, then the th- next night, we'll go to chapter 7, and I want to talk about the vanity of religion when Jeremiah preaches at the temple gates and challenges the people on their ostensible faith in God that was not really working out in their daily lives. And then we want to jump to chapter 20, and I want to talk about Jeremiah's personal response to this because it's very interesting. And uh, that'll be last. The one before that will be 18 and 19. Go ask Pat what the the correct ones are. Uh, So in 18 and 19, we have the two sections on the potter and the pot. And it's a very, very important section for understanding the structure of the book of Jeremiah. And so uh, that's the direction we're going. Now, some of you have asked me about a handout. And God willing, next week we'll have a handout for you. I'll send it to the church and they'll print out some copies, and we'll have a handout with all the names and dates and so on. So you don't have to memorize them, just read them, take them home with you. Uh, I mentioned last week our website, uh, where I have all kinds of resource material that you can pursue it if you want to, and that's homerheater.com. If your name is Homer, you're either old or dead. (coughs) (laughs) Or pastor of the Grace Baptist Church. I was preaching one time in Pennsylvania, and a young couple took me home for lunch, and they said, do you mind if we tell you something funny? And I have a feeling I wouldn't, I would mind, but I said, go ahead. And they said, when we heard that Homer Heater was coming, we wondered if Roto-Rooter could be far behind. So. <laughs> Those of us that are named Homer have to defend it. Uh, I want to review tonight. Uh, I'm going to review every night so that we can get some of these things locked into our heads because we're going to start right in verse 1 of chapter 1, talking about historical background. I mean, the text is, so we have to get some of these anchor points to put some things on, and so I want to do that again tonight. So let's start with the geopolitical scene. Who was the nation that dominated and harassed the western part of the country, including Israel, for 300 years. Assyria. Assyria. Not Syria. Syria is still around today. They're having a few little problems over there. Uh, but Assyria is the country farther to the east, part of Iraq, the northern part of Iraq. Okay? So that's the first thing. Assyrian dominance from 300 centuries, three, uh, three centuries, 300 long years, from approximately 900 to approximately 600 when Assyria disappears. Then we have these Chaldeans rising. The Chaldeans are not the same as Babylonians, but they took over the Babylonian throne and territory. So we'll hear them called in Jeremiah and all the prophets. We'll hear them called sometimes Chaldeans, sometimes Babylonians. For all practical purposes, they are Babylonians because they've been in Babylon for a long time when they finally begin to assert themselves and to move out. And so the Chaldeans under Nabopolassar, in 625 B.C., are going to knock off the Assyrian king uh, located in Babylon, and they're going to start moving north to attack Assyria herself. By this time, Assyria has become weak, and they're vulnerable to attack, and Nabopolassar and his son, General Nebuchadnezzar, are going to begin to attack these people up north. The ancient capital of Assyria was called Asher. Asher is their god. And so Asher and Assyria are the same words. And in 614, uh, with the help of the Medes coming out of the mountains where Iran is today, the Babylonians and the Medes combined forces and they defeated Assyria at Asher in 614 B.C. Two years later, they defeated Nineveh, as Nahum the prophet said they would, said somebody would. Uh, and 612, the capital of Nineveh, which is uh, capital of Assyria, which is Nineveh, falls. And the king and his troops flee to get away from them, and they go west toward Israel, and they go to Haran, and in 609 B.C., Haran, they fall at Haran also. So they're in trouble here. 609 will be a critical, uh, critical date for Judah 
And so we want to point that out in a few moments when I review Judean history. In 609, Josiah dies. And in 605, at the Battle of Carchemish up on the Euphrates River in the present-day country of Syria, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, clash for the last time. And the Assyrians are utterly, completely defeated. We never hear of them again. So you can imagine that 609 and 605 are two very critical dates for Judah. Because up to this point, Judah had been under Assyrian dominance. They had to send their mortgage money to the bank of Assyria every month. Millions of dollars they had to send. Now Assyria is gone, and are they free? That's the next question. And the answer is no. The Babylonians are going to come in and take over Assyria. They're going to say, from now on, send your mortgage money to my bank. We do that all the time. They sell our mortgages, and we never know where we're paying the mortgage to. So this is the geopolitical scene in the midst of which Jeremiah is prophesying. All of this is having a tremendous effect upon Judah. Can you imagine? We've been so isolated from this. We haven't had war on our territory since the Civil War. To have people trampling in your countryside and fighting back and forth and defeating you and taking you into captivity, this is something we can't even begin to comprehend. It must have been a horrible, horrible situation. Second thing I want to talk about is the map itself, and you can see it here. In 625, Nabopolassar takes over Babylon. 614, he defeats Asher. 612, he defeats Nineveh. And then he chases them over to Haran, defeats them in Haran. And in 605, he's going to fight at Carchemish. The Egyptians go to help him because the Egyptians are smart enough to know that a weak Assyria is better than a strong Babylon. So they're going to try to stop the Babylonians. The Judeans, who've always had a pro-Babylonian policy since the days of Hezekiah, they're going to try to stop him. And so Josiah goes up to Megiddo to try to stop Pharaoh Necho from going to help the Assyrians, and he is killed in the battle. That's a terrible, terrible blow because he was a godly king. He's only 39 when this happens. And the reform movement that he had started in Judah to try to turn him back to God now comes to a screeching halt because none of his boys or his one grandson share his enthusiasm for spiritual things. The Egyptians go on up to Carchemish, but uh, doesn't help any. The Assyrians are still defeated, even with Egyptian help. And so consequently, that's the end of the Assyrians. Now I want to talk about Judah's history. <clears throat> now this is the important part for Jeremiah. So if you're taking notes and can write these down, good. If you can't, I'll send you a handout for next week anyway, and you'll have it all there. Number one, Josiah is killed in 609. So obviously that's a critical point. He became king in 640 B.C. Uh, when he was a boy of how, what age? Eight. In 623 B.C., Jeremiah becomes a prophet as a boy. We have two boys running things. Used to have an old neighbor that said, one boy's a boy, two boys is a half a boy, and three boys is no boy at all if you're trying to get anything done. Uh, so Josiah was killed in 609, and now we're going to have his, his boys take over. The people of the land, when Josiah was murdered up at Megiddo by Pharaoh Necho, they put his son on the throne. Jehoahaz is his name. What's his name? Jehoahaz. So Jehoahaz comes on, and in three months' time then, the, the Egyptians come back from Carchemish, where they've been fighting on the side of the Assyrians. They stop in Judah, and they say, we're in charge. I don't know whether you remember or not, uh, when, Ale when uh, President Reagan was shot, and Alexander Haig says, I'm in charge, I'm in charge. Well, he wasn't. He was, uh, the next one was the Speaker of the House, or the Vice President, then the Speaker of the House, and Al Alexander Haig was way down the totem pole in terms of who becomes the next ruler. But he thought he was in charge. Pharaoh Necho says, I'm in charge, I'm taking over, and he says, I'll decide who's going to rule in Judah. And from now on, send your mortgage to my bank account down in Egypt. And so he deposes Jehoahaz and takes him into Egypt with him. Chapter 21 is a marvelous section on the bad leadership of Judah. And in it, he talks about every king. And he says, don't weep for this guy. Uh, he's going to go to Egypt. He's not going to come back. Jehoahaz is his name. So how long does he reign? Three months. When uh, Pharaoh Necho removes him, he puts his brother on the throne, whose name is 
Jehoiakim, the first Korean king. And Jehoiakim is going to last for 11 years, from 609 to 597. Okay. Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is bitterly opposed to Jeremiah because Jeremiah is opposed to him. And uh, he tries to kill Jeremiah. He chases one prophet all the way to Egypt, brings him back, and murders him. So it was not easy being a prophet in those days. I don't know why the Mormons want to have prophets, because prophets is not a happy office to hold. It's always difficult and full of problems and danger. Jehoiakim rebels against Babylon, because Babylon came in 605 after they defeated the Egyptians and the Assyrians, and they came and said, we're in charge, and from now on, send your mortgage to our bank. And they said to Jehoiakim, we'll let you stay on the throne if you will promise everlasting obedience to us. And so he had to hold his hand up and swear by God that he would not violate his oath to the king of Babylon, by this time Nebuchadnezzar, who became king in 605. And he says, I will obey you forever. But he didn't. He lied. And so he revolts against the Babylonians. See, what happens is that these, these national powers, like Babylon and Assyria and so on, they're ruling millions of square miles of people. And so they get tied up over here fighting this bunch of people that are revolting. And while they're over there, these people say, we'll revolt. And so they revolt. Then he's got to get these people put down. Then he brings his army and comes and puts these people down. So it's a constant battle, whack-a-mole type thing, uh, always sticking their heads up and, and causing problems, and they have to defeat them. So Jehoiakim thinks it's a good time to revolt, and so he revolts, and when Nebuchadnezzar finally gets his act together in the east, he brings his armies west. And people say, uh-oh, we shouldn't have done this. And so what did they do? They said, we got to keep old Neb happy. So they killed Jehoiakim. This is my theory. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us what happened to him. But he didn't die of old age. And we will, as it were, throw his head over the wall and say it's his fault, not ours. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes. He accepts that. He says, okay, fool me once. That's your fault. Fool me twice. It's my fault. You'll never get away with this again. You can revolt this one time. You revolt the second time. And you can throw all the heads over the wall you want to. And I'm still going to deal with you. So Jehoiakim is killed in 597, and they put his young son on the throne, who's just about 18 years of age. And how long does he reign? Jehoiakim reigns 11. His young son reigns three months. Okay? So we have three months, 11 years for Jehoiakim, three months for Jehoiachin, the first Chinese king in the Old Testament. Um, Jehoiachin holds the throne just long enough to turn it over to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar takes him and his mother and the family all into captivity. Chapter 29, we love to quote chapter 29, verse 11, don't we? I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, uh, a hope and a promise, a promise of a hope. We love that. But it comes in the context of captivity, where they have suffered tremendously and it's a letter that Jeremiah writes to the people in captivity, including young King Jehoiachin and his, the queen mother and all the retinue that went with them into captivity. Some 3,000 people uh, went around the Fertile Crescent to Babylon into captivity. So Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, I'll take him into captivity as a hostage, as it were, to make sure the next king behaves himself, and I'll put the next guy on. And his name is... Daniel. No. <laughs> in 597, when King Jehoiachin went into captivity, Daniel went with him. That's how Daniel and the three uh, young men wind up in captivity. They go as part of that. They took the cream of the crop, the elites, the educated people. They took those into captivity. And Daniel was part of that group that went at that time. <clears throat> and so Jehoiachin rebels. And he's killed. And Jehoiachin becomes the king for three months. Ezekiel goes into captivity in 597, and then Zedekiah finally is enthroned. And how long does he reign? 11 years. So I got three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years. Okay. We have Josiah, the father and the grandfather, his son Jehoiakim. Uh, Jehoahaz, three months. Jehoiakim, 11 years. 
Jehoiachin, three months, and Zedekiah, 11 years. Zedekiah means Yahweh is righteous. And so in chapters 21 through 23, when Je uh, Jeremiah is excoriating the bad leadership, Zedekiah is not mentioned, but he does talk about a branch who's coming, whose name is going to be called Yahweh is my righteousness, Yahweh Sidkenu. And that's almost a play on Zedekiah, which is Yahweh is righteous. And so I have to wonder if it's not an oblique punch at Zedekiah, who's a bad king, uh, with God going to send this wonderful king in the future. All right. Zedekiah will rebel, um, even though he swore an oath. And Jeremiah says to him, you stood before king, Zedekiah, uh, king Nebuchadnezzar and you swore an oath before Yahweh. Now you're violating that oath, and that's wrong. So Zedekiah's advisor, Zedekiah's a young man. He's somewhat weak. One day he's for Jeremiah, and the next day he locks him up and so on. But his advisors are the war party. They want to fight, and they're determined to fight. And all their determinations, Jeremiah goes around saying, it won't do any good. You guys up on the wall, you can't win. Well, if you've got a guy going around doing that while you're trying to fight a war, what do you do? You have to shut him up. You either listen to him and stop fighting and submit to Babylon, as Jeremiah told them to do, or you shut him up. And so they tried to shut him up. They put him in prison and treated him very, very, very badly. That's what a prophet goes through. Okay. It ain't easy. It's difficult. Tonight I want us to turn to his call in chapter 1. And we're going to go to slide number 8 back there, David. <clears throat> Oftentimes, the prophets will give you their call in the first chapter. Isaiah's is in the sixth chapter, and I think there's a good reason for that. If we ever do Isaiah, we'll talk about that at that time. We have seven points tonight, so you can see it's 626, and my watch stopped too. So. <laughs> Number one, <clears throat> historical background. Oh, wow. Surprise, surprise. Verses 1 through 3. Let me read it to you. Again, I'm reading out of the New King James, not because I think it's the best version, but because it's the right size for me to carry around. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priest who were at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. All right, number one, the prophet's name is Jeremiah. His father is Hilkiah. His profession is He's a priest, and his village is Anathoth. Now, I don't think the roof falls down here if you talk out loud. So go ahead and talk out loud and respond to me here. Then I'll make sure I'm getting through to you. These are all important because in chapter 32, he's going to buy a piece of property in his home village on which the Babylonian army is encamped. It's like buying a piece of water and a piece of land in Florida that's underwater, you know. Uh, and so his village and the people of his village and his priesthood office are all going to be important in the rest of the book. So pay attention to that. Verse 2, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of, who is it? Josiah. What date does he die? 609. So some of his ministry took place in the days when Josiah was ruling and trying to bring about reform in the land. How much, we don't know. There's nothing in the chapters that say in the fourth day of Josiah, he spoke this message. We don't have that. We have to assume some of those chapters. But we know that he prophesied during the time of Josiah. He was the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. Now, that's how I know when Jeremiah became the prophet. It's in the 13th year of Josiah who began to reign in 640. And so that means in 627, Josiah, or Jeremiah, became a prophet. Okay? Verse 3. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. And uh, how long did he reign? Eleven years. Until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Now, what happened to Jehoahaz? And Jehoiachin, they're not mentioned in here. 
they only ruled three months each. They were temporary, so they didn't really count. So he only counted Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. Notice the terminus of this discussion, historically, is the carrying away into captivity. And if you want to write in your Bibles right there, that took place in 586 B.C. 586 B.C. And I flunked math in third grade and never got over it. So tell me, what's the dis difference from 627 to 586? Remember, you've got to count backwards. Got to count down. I think that should be 27 and 14. What does that come to? So we know that Jeremiah's prophecies worked over at least a 40-year period, okay? Actually, longer than that because he went to Egypt afterward and so on. But at least 40 years of his um, prophecy, his ministry took place. Now, let me ask you a question. This is to make you think a little bit here. When were these three verses written? Okay, when else? After the book is completed. How do I know that? Because when he wrote it, the captivity had already taken place. It's like writing a paper. Remember how you used to have to write papers? Isn't that wonderful? And they'll tell you often, I write the whole paper... <coughs> And when you're finished and you know what you're trying to say, then go back and write the introduction. So that's what this is. Bear in mind that this book, Jeremiah didn't sit down one night at 11 o'clock and write this book as if he were cramming for a college exam. This book is made up of bits and pieces of messages preached over 40 years of time. And when he went to Egypt, I think probably they took clay pots with scrolls in them, you know. We know there are all kinds of sources for this book. We know he wrote the letter to the Babylonian captivity. We know that he wrote a scroll in chapter 36 that covered all the 40 years of his ministry up to that point or whatever it was at that point. We know that he wrote a scroll against all the nations. We know that he wrote a scroll against Babylon. These are all separate entities, and they were being circulated as separate entities. And probably when he and Baruch, his secretary, went to Egypt against their will, they took with them clay pots with these various scrolls in them. And I can see when they sit down to Baruch and said, now we've got to put this book together so that the people in captivity will understand how they got there. And now, uh, you remember, that remember that time you were at the temple and we preached? Bring that scroll over here. We'll put it right here. See? And so this book comes together in that fashion. And then when they finished with the whole thing, they said, now let's go back and tell them when this took place. It took place in verses 1 through 3. Okay, you with me? All right, so that's the historical background. And let me see, do we have a slide up here? Okay, so that should say chronological, chronological introduction. Okay, number two, <clears throat> verse four. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, what? I knew you. Before you were born, I what? I sanctified you. I set you apart for a task. I ordained you as a prophet for the nations. Man, that is a statement, isn't it? While your mother was still carrying you in the womb, aren't you glad they didn't have late-term abortions back then? While your mother was still carrying you in the womb, I selected you for this task. Do you know who else says almost the same thing? The Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 1, verse 16. God called me from my mother's womb. You wonder what that was when the baby was jumping around? That's probably God talking to them, you see. And you thought they were just moving. What a wonderful thing this is, that God called him before he was ever born. Those who are called to a very difficult task quite often have a stronger sense of calling than the rest of us do. The Apostle Paul, for him to endure all that he endured had to be saved in an unusual way on the road to Damascus. And he never forgot that and gave his testimony over and over again how God knocked him down, blinded him, <clears throat> and called him to preach to the Gentile world. Because the Apostle Paul had an uphill battle all the way. The Jewish Christians did not believe 
that the gospel should go beyond the Jewish pale. And if you were to be a Christian, you had to become Jewish first. That's what they believed. And that's what they were practicing. And along comes Paul and says, you know what, folks? You Jewish folks are very proud of your position with God, Romans chapter 3. But I want to tell you, there's no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And this gospel is going not just to the Jewish world, but it's going to the whole Gentile world. And I, the consummate Jew, the one who was a rabid rabbi, the one who knew the scriptures better than anyone else, the one who was educated in Tarsus in a marvelous way, God has called me to go to this Gentile world. And no one can criticize my background and my ability. They could say of Peter, he's a poor dumb fisherman. They could say of any of the apostles, they simply don't have what it takes. They never went to seminary. They don't know anything about Judaism except what little bit their mom and dad taught them. But Paul had it all. He was the top of his class, he says. And God used him to take this message that it's not just to Jewish people, but to Jews and Gentiles who will now make up this new thing called the church. Jeremiah's ministry is just as difficult as Paul's, if not more so. He will be despised, <clears throat> accused of being a traitor, asked to do something he didn't believe in. He was forbidden from taking a wife, never allowed to marry. He spent time in prison, beaten, shoved on. And after everything had come true that he said would happen, when they got ready to flee to Egypt, they said to him, Jerry, we need to know if God is in this. You go, ask God, and whatever he tells you, we will do it. So he went away and prayed. I don't know whether God revealed to him in a spirit or in a dream or what, but some way, <clears throat> God said, you go back and tell them that if they'll stay in the land, I'll take care of them. Don't go to Egypt. And you know what they said? You're a liar. <laughs> After 40 years, they still say, you're a liar. After everything had come true that he said would come true, you're a liar. That's the level that they thought of him being on. So he had this call. <clears throat> this is God calling him his sovereign choice. And that would be the next point. Number three, then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I'm a what? Youth. Now, this could be just a general statement. I'm just a kid. I can't talk. But it probably represents the fact that he was young. That's why we say that Josiah was a young man. Started out when he was eight. And when he was 16, he started seeking the Lord. When he was 18, he started bringing about reform and tearing down the altars and destroying the idols. And when he was 20, they found the law book. And when he was 39, he was killed. So we got a young guy on the throne, and we got a young guy in prophetic ministry here. And I want to reiterate again, there's no divine requirement that teenagers rebel. Okay? God doesn't require it. You don't have to. You can skip that stage and just be a mature young person as you move along. I understand that young people have to learn how to stand on their own two feet, think for themselves and all that. And sometimes that involves a certain amount of rebellion. Um, but this out-and-out -out rebellion it just is not necessary. It doesn't have to happen. I know your next question is, how do you keep it from happening? <laughs> That's for another day. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> Same man again we were talking about a moment ago, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, like Jeremiah, was unappreciated. Here's the greatest man in all of church history. And yet, because he made himself a servant, they treated him as a servant. When he came to Corinth, how did he get his support? Did he go to the international board and say, uh, could you take me on? Where did he get it? He worked with his own hands. In the, that day, the Jewish families all said, everybody should have a trade. No matter if you become a rabbi or not, you've got to have a trade to be able to support yourself. And so his trade was making tents. With all of his education, 
people with college degrees don't want to go work at McDonald's, but sometimes you have to. And uh, he made tents. So when he came to Corinth, he never asked the Corinthian church for a dime. And guess what? They treated him like dirt because of that. And I think of that Christmas song that we sing. We didn't know who he was. Jesus was there in the manger, such a humble way. We didn't know who he was. They didn't know who Paul was, the greatest man in all of church history. Led them to Christ, taught them and discipled them, and they didn't know who he was. And then behind him come these Judaizers who come along and say, if you're really going to be a Christian, you have to become Jewish first. You've got to go back under the law. You've got to start observing the feast days, the Sabbath days. You've got to offer sacrifice, go to the temple, and so on. <clears throat> and they said, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, he's not even trained well in homiletics. He doesn't speak well. Uh, you don't want to pay attention to him. And what did the people do? They bowed and scraped in front of these people. And they gave them money. Paul says in chapter 9, I think it is, I didn't take any of your money. Forgive me. <laughs> if I had taken your money, you'd have thought I was important. But because I came humbly and submitted myself, you treated me like dirt. And I want to tell you, folks, God calls upon us to be servants. And when you're a servant, people treat you like one. Here's what he says to the Corinthian church. Chapter 3. Do we begin to commend ourselves to you? Do we need, as somebody else, letters of recommendation or letters of commendation from you? Uh, hello, I'm Paul. Remember me? I'm the one who came to Corinth, worked with my own hands night and day, taught you at night, and led you to Christ and discipled you. Remember me? And yet you're now telling me you want a letter <laughs> of commendation from me? I, I did this one time to one of my grads. He asked me to come and preach for him. He said, we'll need a, a statement from you about your doctrine and where you stand. So I quoted 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to him. <laughs> he didn't appreciate it, but I did. <clears throat> we don't need letters of commendation from people like Peter, James, and John. Where is our letter of commendation? You're it. We led you to Christ. You know what happened to you. You know how you came to Christ. You know how you were disabled. You know how you were transformed. You know how you were changed. I'm the guy that did that, remember? I led you to Christ. You don't need letters. Clearly, verse 3, you're an epistle of Christ ministered by us. We did this. We didn't save you, but we led you to the one who did. Written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Now, he's going to pick up tablets of stone later on. Now, verse 4. We have such trust, such confidence through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God. So Jeremiah says, Lord, you're calling me to be a prophet? I'm just a kid. How can I possibly be a prophet? And God has to deal with him along those lines. When you're asked to teach a Sunday school class, when you're asked to share your faith with someone, your first response is, unless you're an unusually confident person, I don't know how to do that. I don't have the confidence for that. How can I possibly do that? I'm not trained or educated, and I didn't go to seminary, and I don't have all this background. How can I possibly do that? And you can cry out that you're insufficient, inadequate for this task. And that's the next point I want to share with you here. Reminds me of the guy that went to the psychiatrist and he said, uh, Doctor, I have a problem. Yeah. I have an inferiority complex. So he said, well, let's talk about it and we'll give you some tests and so on. And Next week when he came back, he said, I've got some good news and bad news for you. He said, you don't have an inferiority complex. You are inferior. And when we say, I'm inadequate for this task, that's true. 
how can I possibly win someone to Christ? How can I share the gospel in such a way that they will understand? What if they ask me a question that I can't answer? What if they ask me about the Old Testament where they killed all those people and God told them to do it? How do I, how do I deal? I can't deal with that. I'm inadequate for the task. And if I ask tonight for a show of hands, I suspect I'd get quite a large number of hands to say, I've said that many times. I am inadequate for this task. And the answer is, you are. You are. Face that. It's something that you cannot change. You are inadequate. But God's sufficiency. Not that we're sufficient of ourselves, says Paul. I don't want you to think I'm bragging. I didn't come down to Corinth to face beatings at Philippi where they put me in prison overnight with my back bleeding from having beaten me. Chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he says, five times I was beaten with stripes, three times with rods, metal rods. Once I was left for dead. We've been in shipwrecks. We've been in hungers. We've been starving. I didn't do this for the fun of it, folks. I am inadequate for this task, but God has made me sufficient for this task. And God is able to do the same thing to you. If he asks you to do something, which the scriptures are full of ask, then he has the ability, God does, to make you sufficient. So verse 7 says, but the Lord said to me, don't say I'm just a youth. I don't want to hear it. For you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of their faces, for I'm with you to deliver you, says the Lord. I don't know how I would react if I were living in Iraq today or Iran, <coughs> where my very life is threatened because I'm a Christian. We have a dear friend in Texas. He's an Iranian who came to this country as a boy. He was a child prodigy. His mom and dad sent him here to prepare for medical school at the University of Illinois. And as a late teenager, when 1979 took place and the American embassy was held captive for 300 days, and people in America learned to hate Iranians. And he said, I, I went around knowing people were looking at me, and I became despondent and depressed, and I wanted to kill myself. And I was walking along the road one day, and a guy from Moody Bible Institute, thank God for those guys, teacher, a teacher, not a student, but a teacher, would go to this campus and hand out gospels and share their faith with people. He said, this one gentleman, they told me, he said, the other students said, watch out for those guys, they're crazy. But he said, this one gentleman came along one day, and he took me by the arm, and he said, why are you so sad? And he said, I was taught to be polite to my elders, so I didn't dare jerk myself away, but I said, I got to go to class, and he wouldn't let me go. He held on to me. Finally gave me a scripture, Gospel of John, and no, the New Testament. And to make a long story short, he came to know the Lord. He went to Calvary Bible College in Kansas City. Then he came to Dallas Seminary, where I met him in uh, the 80s or 90s, and uh, took his THM in theological studies, the first converted Muslim we'd had graduate from Dallas Seminary. I think that's correct. Then he went to England and went to Cambridge and took a PhD in New Testament studies. And he was so highly regarded that they recommended he go to Oxford and took another doctorate at Oxford. Brilliant guy. Utterly brilliant. Came back home and Southern Methodist University, the seminary part, Perkins, wanted to hire him in the Old Testament. But when the other guy in the Old Testament knew how conservative he was, he said, if you hire him, you fire me. So he didn't get the job. So he said, Lord, what do I do? And so he, he and another friend decided they would start reaching Muslims in Dallas, Texas. So they took the phone book. And they're, you know, this thick down there. They ripped it in half. One took one half. The other took the other half. They went for every Iranian name they could find, invited them out to celebrate Christmas with them and began a church in Dallas. Now he goes to Iran, uh, doesn't dare talk about it, 
uh, that he goes to Iran uh, two or three times a year, shares with the believers there. So the first time I went, <coughs> a, a woman contacted me who had come to the States to study and had come to know the Lord. And she said to him, would you like to meet some other Christians? He said, I didn't even know there were other Christians in Iran. So she took me to this group with seven older men. And they had been praying earnestly for someone to come and teach them and help them. And this guy comes, and they're suspicious of him, obviously. Did the government send him? Is he here to check us out? But he said, when they finally determined that I was really on the square, they rejoiced, and I began to teach and instruct in the Word of God. He said, since that time, all seven of those people have died. They've been hanged, hacked to death, put in prison and died. All seven are gone. And I've said to myself many times, what if I were in that boat? How would I react? I think I'm basically at heart a coward. And I think I'd have a hard time responding to something like that. But he keeps going back. Every time he goes back, there's a danger that he will be caught and arrested. He came so close to being caught the last time he was there. He said, the police stopped me and took me into a room for interrogation. But I had my cell phone. And he knew someone who was high up in the government because he was from a very aristocratic family. And he said, I called him, and he got on the phone and said, let this guy alone, and they let him go. He was in Bulgaria. He goes to minister to Farsi-speaking people, people who speak Farsi are from Iran. <clears throat> when he came back, he was so sick, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. And one doctor said, if I didn't know better, <clears throat> I would think that you had been poisoned. And he hasn't recovered totally from that yet. That's the kind of persecution and difficulty that Jeremiah is going to have to go through as well. And I would hope and pray that if I ever have to face it, that I'll do the right thing when that time comes. God is sufficient. There's another point found in verse 9. God's divine touch. Now, I want you to understand that prophets are different. <clears throat> I never had a vision like this when people would say to me what's your call to the ministry like I had a hard time telling them because I simply loved the word started studying the scriptures started teaching started preaching and there I was and I didn't have a vision from heaven I didn't have any hand of God upon me but these prophets had to have something special and so we read in verse 9 that the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth and the Lord said to me Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. All right, I want you to read that with me. Verse 10. See, I have put this, set you, sorry, let me start over again. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to do what? To root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. So you've got a message that has four negatives and two positives. Two to one. Your ministry is going to be one that's viewed as very, very negative. Most prophets in the Old Testament are not preaching feel-good sermons. Uh, Joel Austin would not make a good Old Testament prophet. <laughs> and much of our preaching these days is more along the lines of feel good to try to encourage people. And we need that. Oh, how we need that. But at the same time, the prophet's job was to preach a message that said, if you keep on this direction, God is going to deal with you. And you've got to turn back. And I shared the other night about the yoke, remember? Remember? You need to put your neck in the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar and accept his overlordship. God has designed this. You must accept it. And the prophet Hananiah comes along, takes the yoke off his neck, smashes it on the ground, and says, within two years' time, all of the captives that have been taken away will come back, and all the temple vessels that were taken away will be brought back. And Jeremiah says, I hope you're right, but just remember this. Usually a prophet doesn't say good things. He says bad things, hard things to accept. And God says to him, 
This is what you're to teach. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to come back to that one in a moment. Thank you, Matt. <clears throat> Can't get my motor started tonight. This is the recurring theme in Jeremiah. These six things. Four negatives, two positives. I want to show you. First of all, in verse 110, the one we're just looking at, you got all six of them. Okay? In chapter 18, the Potter chapter, he says, if I said at some point that I was going to pluck up, pull down, destroy, notice three of them, and I change my mind, or if they will repent, I'll change my mind and not do it. Conversely, if I said I was going to build and to plant, if they disobey, I will change my mind and bring judgment upon them. So there you are, the same message. So watch for that in the book. In chapter 31, which is in this book of hope section, marvelous from 30 through 33, the book of comfort, the book of hope. Pluck up, break down, throw down, destroy, afflict. There you have five, build and plant. And then in these verses, you have some of those six things. Not all of them, but you have some of them mentioned. So therefore, this is his message. My message is that God is going to destroy this people. And yet, God is going to restore this people. That's my message. But it's two to one on the destroy side. And when you get to chapter 30, you have some before that. Chapter 29 is part of it. Chapter 25 is part of it. But chapter 30, you have 30, 31, 32, and 33, all devoted to building and planting. God is going to restore his people. So in his call, this is the message that he's to preach. So if God calls you to go out and preach on the streets of Somerset, all you people are going to hell, walking up and down the street. Can you imagine how well you'd be received? First of all, they call you a nut. Secondly, they'd try to harass you. Thirdly, they might even try to find a city ordinance to get rid of you. But that's what he's being called to do. <coughs> now back to the call. This is a special call to the prophetic ministry. It's not what typically happens to those in full-time ministry. If I were to ask Pastor Bill or Scott or whatever this guy's name is. <laughs> Why do you be believe that you were called to the ministry? You'd each have a little different story. <clears throat> but none of them, I think, would include this kind of a call. So don't look for this. And I think young pastors sometimes worry that they can't talk about a Damascus Road experience or something like this that called them into the ministry. Some people, I think, may have that today. Um, I tell you, our friend from Iran, he has no doubt about his salvation, deeply committed to it because he was saved out of Islam. Uh, but for many of us, we, do the, we use the gifts that God has given us. If those are pastoral gifts, we use them. If they're preaching gifts, we use them. If they're teaching gifts, we use them. If they're encouraging gifts, we use them. And you just move into the task God has called you to do. There was a time back in the 70s that everybody's talking about spiritual gifts. Remember that? What's your spiritual gift? We had a test that you gave people that you took. I remember visiting a missionary lady in Brazil back in 1965. And she said, since I've been in Brazil, I've started the school. I teach everybody. I disciple. I even preach occasionally. <clears throat> now they're asking me, what's your gift? <laughs> Don't worry about your gift. Just do what you enjoy doing, and you'll see your gift float to the surface. And then he'll say, ah, that's good. You teach a Sunday school class for a couple years, and they say, you're the worst teacher I've ever heard of. You might decide maybe it's another gift that you have. Uh, and somebody might say, boy, you're wonderful with encouraging people. And you listen to that, and because the church becomes the mutual place of encouraging one another to find our gift. Uh, not that we're looking for the gift. We're looking for God and to serve him. That's his call. Now we come to verse 11. <clears throat> and I'm going to go backward here. In chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, we have God's symbolic message. Now I want to show you something here. Look at your Bibles. I presume you mostly have NASBs. How many have NASBs? Oh, not everybody. What else do you have? King James Version? Uh, we've got some good old diehards in here. Uh, NIV? Anybody going that far? Okay. ESV, okay. Now, if you have the King James Version, you're out of luck on this one, see, because 
uh, the King James Version treats uh, all the Bible text as block text when you set it up to print it. Just the way the Hebrew Bible is. It just goes on and on and on and on. No periods, no commas, no breaks, no question marks. Just page after page after page after page. That's the way the King James is set up because it's following the Hebrew text. However, all of your modern versions, without exception, try to distinguish between poetry and prose. The way they do it is that you indent the poetry on both sides. Now look at the verses we've just been reading, beginning with verse 5 down to verse 10. Do you see it? They're all indented on both sides. Notice in verse 11, what do you have from 11 through 13? A block text. Therefore, verses uh, 5 through 10 are poetry, and verses 11 through 13 are prose. You follow me? It's important. I'm not just trying to play with your brain here. Um, all of Hebrew is classical language, and Jeremiah's, even his prose sections, are almost poetic. They're so beautiful. But nonetheless, we can generally tell the difference in Hebrew between poetry and prose. And so the translators of the various versions have said, okay, verses 5 through 10 are poetry. We'll set it out in this fashion. And verses 11 through 13 are prose, and we'll put them in block text. Now, why am I saying that? I'm saying that because that may indicate that when Jeremiah put this book together down in Egypt, he had some sections over here, and if he had similar sections, he brought it in here along with it. And he's got a prose section here where he wrote down how God spoke to him at one time and gave him these illustrations to back up his ministry. But they didn't happen at the same time that verses 5 through 10 happened. Okay. So now let's look at 11 through 14. <coughs> Moreover, that means, you know, in addition to the vision I had in 5 through 10. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see the branch of an almond tree. Okay. Then verse 13 says, uh, verse 12 says, Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. And you say uh, what's the connection? Olive tree, almond tree, almond tree, perform my word. What's the connection? Well, the connection is you've got to come to my house and learn some Hebrew. And, and that will help us here. The word for almond tree is shockade. Can you say that with me? Shockade. The word for watching over to perform my word is showcade. Can you say that with me? Showcade. Now you see he's making a play on the word. Okay. A pun, as it were, the way we pun on something. So he said, what do you see? I see a shockade. That's true because I'm going to showcade my word. I'm going to bring it to fulfillment and to pass. So he sees this almond tree, and every time he sees an almond tree from now on, he remembers what God said. I'm going to perform my word. The second thing he sees is in verse 13. He says, and the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, and this is another indication that this isn't part of the first call in 5 through 10. Came to me the second time, saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot, and it's facing away from the north. So here's the pot boiling with water. And tipped over on its side, and the open mouth is headed toward Judah. And that boiling water is going to come out and flood down and bring judgment upon Judah. And he said, that is the enemy of the north. He hasn't mentioned the Chaldeans yet. That will come later about chapter 20 when he mentions the Babylonians for the first time. And then the Lord said to me, verse 14, Out of the north calamity shall break forth on the inhabitants of the land, for behold, I'm calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. They shall come and each one set up his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls round about, against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, and worshiped the works of their own hands. What happened to Josiah's reform? It didn't last very long. It wasn't very deep. And when he died in 609... 
everybody went back to doing what they wanted to do. When I was a young boy, I went to Georgia to work. I think I was 16, and I attended a Baptist church down at 3rd and Wood Street in Macon, Georgia. Still had clay mud streets going by the church, had dust on the pews every Sunday morning. But it was heaven to me because I had grown up in West Virginia Methodism where the, we uh, got religion in the wintertime and sweated out in the summertime and had no preaching or teaching that taught you anything. It was just awful. And here we had a full-time pastor who uh, preached every Sunday, and we had a youth group, and it was a wonderful experience for me. So I obviously was very impressed by it. And when the pastor got up and preached on, don't go to movies. Can you imagine a time when people preach, don't go to movies? And I said, okay, I quit going to movies. But when I left Georgia and moved to D.C. to work for the government, and I met Pat, and eventually we got married. And one night we went to a drive-in movie. And in the middle of that drive-in movie, it was probably pretty moderate by today's standards, but it got so raunchy that I said, let's get out of here. We drove our car out and left the movie. The first time I stopped going to movies, it was because of some preacher telling me I should. The reform wasn't very deep. And when I got away from that church, I started going to movies again. But when God said, stop going to this movie at least, then that's a conviction, and I stopped doing it. What we need is conviction today. Not because Pastor Bill says it's wrong, but because God says it's wrong. And I need to have a conviction. Certain things are wrong, certain things are right. I'm not saying it's movies now. I'm not into that legalism <clears throat> as that church was. But I am saying there are some things that are wrong. Lying, cheating, stealing, fornication. These are wrong things that we must stop doing because God will hold us accountable for it. So his first Message, chapter 1. All of you people that are idolatrous and following these idols, you are in serious trouble <clears throat> because God is going to judge you with this nation coming out of the north. Verse 17, <clears throat> he gives a challenge. Therefore, prepare yourselves and arise and speak to them all that I command you, Jeremiah. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city in an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its princes, its priests, and all the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Well, that sounds good. I can go out and preach, and they can't hurt me. Ooh, not quite true. That's why when they beat up on Jeremiah in chapter 20, and old Malachi ben Emmer called him out and beat him up, put him in the stocks overnight, said next morning, I don't want to hear any more of this stuff out of you. And Jeremiah said, your name from now on is Magro Misabib, which means scared to death on all sides. But then he goes home, crawls under the bed, and says, Lord, my name's Magro Misabib. I'm scared on all sides too. He said at one point, I finally said, Lord, I'm not going to preach anymore. All I get is derision all day long. They laugh at me. They mock me. They beat me up. They put me in prison. Why am I doing this? I don't need this. You ever hear that? I don't need this. But he said, thy word was in my heart like a fire burning, and I could not restrain myself. I had to go preach. Oh, boy, when you have that in people's hearts, uh, that makes you excited. And people begin to reach out and to bring glory and honor to our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there you have it. That's Jeremiah's call. He's going to have a tough ministry lying ahead of him, very tough ministry. It's going to consummate with the fall of the city, and uh, King Nebuchadnezzar sends his emissaries to say to Jeremiah because they knew what he was teaching, if you want to go to Babylon, we'll take care of you. We'll give you a stipend, retirement benefits, nice place to live, or you can stay here, whatever you want. And uh, Jeremiah stayed. They took him to Egypt. And that's the last we hear of him. He preaches a couple of sermons down in Egypt. Then we hear of him no more. A faithful man, though, for over 40 years, preaching where he was not wanted, where he was not appreciated, where his word was rejected, where he was called a liar, a traitor, and all the rest. But God was faithful. And the things that God has called us to do, he hasn't called us to do them because he says, I'm going to keep you from suffering. I'm going to keep you from ever having any problems. That's not the point. God has not called us to a bed of roses. He's not called us to a life of ease. He's called us to a life of difficulty. 
And I need to face that fact and to accept it and to embrace it. But God says, in the midst of that, I will be with you. I will be a bronze wall to you. I will care for you. I will deliver you. One day, Jeremiah's secretary, Baruch, says in chapter 45, I'm sick of this stuff. And God says to him, Baruch, are you seeking great things for yourself? You want to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention? You want to have a nice retirement that you can go to Florida on in the wintertime and have a summer house up in Kentucky? Don't seek them. Tell you what, Baruch, I'm going to give you your life as your spoil. That's all you're going to walk away with, just your life. But most people won't have their lives, so you'll be ahead of the game. So to Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to deliver you in the midst of great difficulty. May God help us to stand faithful, to say, and to preach, and to teach what's in this book, no matter how much we suffer, no matter what people say about us, no matter how criticized we are. Help us, O oh God, to be grateful, to be uh, faithful to him all the way to the end. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord. For